1: and Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where Tropical Storm Barry lumbered around the Gulf of Mexico for days before making landfall as a hurricane and then petering out. And Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, which is also feeling some of the effects of Tropical Dis- Depression Barry. Tonight, we'll talk about Sedley Alley, who was convicted after a trial in 1987 of the brutal murder of Marine Lance Corporal Suzanne Marie Collins on July 11, 1985. Alley's vehicle was identified by sight and sound by three witnesses. Two of those witnesses saw part of the abduction of Corporal Collins and reported it to guards on the Naval Support Activity Millington Allie was questioned by Naval Investigative Service investigators who released him due to lack of evidence. After Corporal Collins' body was found in nearby Elm, Edmund Orgill Park, Allie was arrested. He raised an insanity defense at trial, and defense experts diagnosed him with multiple personality disorder, which is now called dissociative identity disorder. Neither Allie's direct appeal or his initial state post-conviction appeals Challenged any of the evidence of his guilt. As always, we are a live show and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347 989 1171. And good evening, Michael.
2: Good evening, Lisa. I tell you, you know, a tropical depression is about the right term for what's <laughs> been going on the past couple days because, man, all it does is rain. And it can make you quite
1: depressed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I want to say I want to thank you. Um, on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, I got messages from Michael on Facebook. He was really concerned about me, um, well, especially after seeing the flooding that happened on Wednesday, which was nowhere near me, and it kept me from having to go to work. Yay! So, but that was very, very sweet, Michael. Thank you.
2: Well, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the closest since, and like I said, correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is the closest since Katrina. Hasn't it been? The closest one? No,
1: we've had, we've had a couple of episodes of Flash Flooding, in the city of New Orleans, I'm in an area that is a little bit higher because I'm across the river mm-hmm. from the city. The city of New Orleans is in a bowl. It's the bottom right. of a bowl. And I'm in an area that's a little bit higher.
2: Are you in uh, – um, and I'm trying to figure out how to pronounce it, but it's where I stayed when I went to New Orleans, the time I went. air uh, or something like that? Metairie.
1: Metairie.
2: Yep. Yeah, That's
1: where I'm yeah Metairie, where is, Metairie is in Jefferson Parish. Uh, and one of the issues we're having right now is sewage and water board, which is in charge of drainage and pumps in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. They have had some financial difficulties.
2: Oh, great. I don't know Perfect. why, because <laughs> the water
1: bills are outrageous, uh-huh. uh, but they have 120 pumps, and they've, got, they've had two pumps for several years that have not mm-hmm. been working and that have not been addressed or fixed.
0: Okay.
1: And they had a shakeup a few months, several months ago, about their leadership. Of course, well, when the I'm new mayor sure comes in, do. they the new mayor appoints you know new people because it's a an entity That's of the city of New Orleans.
2: The kind of shit that you find out there during natural disasters, which I guess this wasn't really a disaster, but it kind of makes me scratch my head, kind of like the levees <coughs> in uh, Katrina, and now you're talking mm-hmm. about the water pumps. You know, how can a city that you know quote unquote modern? Um, have stuff that out of date, it kind of boggles my mind sometimes. Especially with the money, you've got to assume that <sighs> then, you know, tourist money, and then like football money, basketball money. Well,
1: but how that, how that money is distributed um, is not what you would think. Okay. You know, I mean, and And basically, as far as basically as far as tourist money, football money, that's all taxes, okay, sales taxes, you know occupancy taxes, different taxes that go to the city of New Orleans. they oh, don't okay. actually see the profit. the profit goes to the individual businesses well I'm um and then the state of Louisiana bad. takes some. Um, and, you know, so, because there was an issue in the news about that where the the city of New Orleans was trying to get a bigger piece of the mm-hmm. the taxes and the revenue that comes in with tourism you know, and football games. And, yeah. They
2: should when you think about it. I mean, you're looking at it. I, I don't know how much of the tourism is for the professional teams they have in New Orleans. But I'm sure it's not a small percentage. And, you know, good Lord, obviously New Orleans needs it.
1: <clears throat> yeah. So.
2: I mean, you don't see but. problems like this in New York or Los Angeles. Obviously, you know, we learned from the whole Anthony Davis basketball player situation that New Orleans apparently doesn't quite rank on those cities' levels, but still.
1: Well, yeah, and there there's still some uh, hurt feelings because people have the impression that the Bensons don't feel that way. Although I don't agree because the Bensons, if they didn't support the Pelicans or um, before that the Hornets, um, mm-hmm. you know, they wouldn't have gone to the games.
2: Well, that's crazy. They wouldn't have me.
1: put in the, the money Bensons for the teams. The, and, who,
2: the Bensons are the ones who own the Saints as well, correct?
1: Correct. Gail, then, Gail Benson I mean, now owns Gail Benson now owns all that,
2: I know uh, much it,
1: to I the know. chagrin Lloyd. of her stepchildren.
2: <laughs> yeah, I read about that. But I know it was Lloyd at the time, but dear Lord, they kind of had a blowout party when the Saints finally came back, Lloyd did. So, I mean, he. he you can't say that he didn't have pride with where his teams were.
1: Tom Benson.
2: Tom? I thought his name was Lloyd. My mistake.
1: No, no. Tom Benson. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and she's she's got racehorses, too.
0: Oh,
2: wow. Yeah. They
1: probably so.
2: would have been in Querlands, if I remember, because I just read uh-huh. something on the other day.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. He... He went to Houston, San Antonio, made his money with car dealerships, and then came back to New Orleans.
2: Which, I mean, heck, that's a, that's a ringing endorsement of, you know, New Orleans, that you're going to give up those two cities for to come back to New Orleans.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... All right. You ready to get in the new new developments real quick?
2: Let's get into new business.
1: All right. Uh, Bruce (laughs) Davis, he was a member of the Manson family. Uh, He is serving a life sentence for the murder of Gary Hinman, Mm -hmm. which he was involved in with Bobby Busellet. He has been granted parole recommendation by the California Parole Board. Uh, you know, that look, is under review by Governor Gavin Newsom at this time.
2: I do have a question for you. We've been kind sure. of baffled, I, I have at least, that they're <clears> letting <throat> these guys out, but i just thought about this. Are they letting these guys out because Charlie finally passed away and they think that, you know, maybe Charlie's control, quote-unquote, under the, No.
1: No. <clears throat> the impression that I'm getting from everything that I'm reading is that the parole board members now are more progressive than their predecessors.
0: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm.
1: And so they are seeing rehabilitation of these okay. people and thinking they've been punished enough based on their progressive viewpoint.
2: Well I mean... um,
1: And so that's basically why they're saying they've been they've been in prison forty years. They've done programs, they they're reformed, they're rehabilitated. Let them out. And like I said, um, Davis's decision is under review by Gavin Newsom, who has the basically final say. Uh, he recently reverse the recommendation of the board on Bobby Boussoulet and Leslie Van Houten, so more likely than not, he will probably do the same with Bruce Davis. Because I think another thing that's interesting and important is that none of these people is really taking full responsibility for their part. they are all still trying to say, but it was Charlie. Right. I wasn't an evil, horrible bastard. It was Charlie.
2: Charlie made me do it.
1: Yeah. And I think a couple of them have even said, uh, you know, if I hadn't done it, he would have killed me. I was afraid he would kill me.
2: Now, to be fair, I mean, That's about like Charlie. Especially the females.
1: You know, but I, I mean, when it really, when it comes down to it, maybe it's just me. But I would accept that. I would do my best to take Charlie with me. But oh, I would true. rather lose my life than take someone else's.
0: True.
1: Unless it true. was self-defense. You know, Um, so... Yeah, I'll, I'll keep an eye on that. And then Dahlia DiPolito's attorneys are seeking review of her case by the Florida Supreme Court. They filed okay. a notice of their intent to seek a writ, um, and they will be filing their writ. Luckily, the Florida Supreme Court, their dockets are – everything's available, so I'll be able to get uh-huh. a copy of the writ.
2: Okay. Okay.
1: And then, in big, big news, Rodney Reed, the Bastrop district attorney, filed a request with the district court for a November twentieth, twenty nineteen execution date. Right. Bruce uh, Bryce Benjet, uh, Reed's attorney has filed a motion opposing that and seeking to strike the request for the execution date. And um, interestingly enough, he's claiming that the attorney is misrepresenting the status of Reed's case to the court because in an article, well, Ben Jett said in the article after Reed's case was, his latest writs were dismissed. Mm-hmm. Ben Jett said, oh, well, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. We're going to, you know, we're going to go to federal court and try to get DNA testing. We're right. you know, still wanting to go to the Supreme Court. We're still wanting to do this. But the, the problem is, is that when Bastrop County filed the request for the execution date, no pleadings had been filed in any venue. Or any jurisdiction mm-hmm. challenging Rodney Reed's conviction and/or sentence, and so it's not the district attorney who's misrepresenting the status; it's Bryce Benjet.
2: So basically, what I have a feeling old Bryce Benjet was doing was waiting for the uh, state he, to make the next move, he, so then he could come. up He was to-
1: exactly. That is exactly right. He would not have filed anything on behalf of Reed had Bastrop County not requested an execution date.
2: So because Reed all he's be
1: doing honest. is buying time.
2: Yeah, he's not. He's just buying to... his.
1: He he's bought he's is... bought him four and a half years mm-hmm. because his execution date was March fifteenth twenty fifteen true, sure. you know, so um, I'll keep you posted on that i'm gonna I'm gonna keep an eye on that. Okay. The state is requesting that the date be set without a hearing. Uh, of course, Reed is requesting a hearing, and actually, maybe next week. We'll open up the show, and I'll go into a little bit more detail about not only the request but the opposition.
2: Okay. Well, Lisa, now let's see we've gotten to the end of our new developments. I've got some more. No, we haven't.
1: No, we 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 haven't. We've got one more, Leslie Van Houten.
2: I'm sorry. I'm blind.
1: Continue. (laughs) (laughs) You stopped even looking at these outlines. Um, no, know. Leslie Van Houten. Literally
2: <laughs> had it sitting right in front of me, and I looked over, and I was like, "Okay, okay, okay." And then, like, the bad thing is, when we started telling about read, I was looking at the wrong one. I was looking at Van Houten.
1: Okay, all right. Uh, no, Leslie Van Houten. Her attorneys have filed yet another writ of habeas corpus, uh, challenging the reversal. Of the parole grant from January
2: 2019.
1: Okay. Uh, which remember that in January she was given another recommendation that she be paroled, and Governor Newsom said no in June, and she's uh-huh. now challenging that reversal. Uh, we are also waiting for a decision on the 2017 reversal. A decision by the Court of Appeal on that has been delayed for 90 days because apparently the panel member who was supposed to write the opinion had to transfer it to a different member of the panel. And so they're going to need another 90 days before they get that decision.
2: And I think they were also
1: waiting to see what Governor Newsom would do with the prior grant because if governor newsom approved parole then all of her challenges would become moot
2: right so basically now she's got two shots at this because she's got two parole Correct. reversals Correct. that she shot
1: well okay no Champion. not really okay. if the if the court of appeal does not find that governor brown exceeded his authority in the 2017 reversal they're unlikely to grant this new writ based on the 2019 reversal
2: I was about to say what's the chances that they just come up with a uh, kind of a pin stroke on both of them you know well no
1: it'll like i said if if the if the if the court of appeal me. Finds that uh, Governor Brown shouldn't have reversed the decision in 2017. They'll order mm-hmm. that she be paroled. Okay. Okay. And then she'll get parole, and then this 2019 writ will become moot. But if, if they does, don't deny, means... if they if the if the court of appeal affirms Brown's reversal. It's highly unlikely that they're gonna find Newsom's reversal error with Newsom's reversal. And so this this newest writ has little chance of success.
2: So basically she's got two shots at this, but you know, really it's one shot. Correct. Okay.
1: More or less. Okay. It's gonna depend it's really gonna depend on what the what the Court of Appeal finds and okay. i've been looking and i haven't found anything um in the last 10 years from the court of appeal regarding any of the manson members' paroles well i, mean, I that may be that when they were denied they didn't challenge it in court
2: i know i said earlier you know that it's kind of crazy to me that, you know, they're all getting parole and what have you now. But right. to be fair, if you've got two back-to-back parole hearings and both times the parole board requests parole, mm, it's going to be hard for me to not say that, no. okay, yeah, I mean, you've gone up twice. Well, they both t- have decided that you deserve it. We're going to go ahead and let you go.
1: Well, yeah, but they're they're – In most states, any decision made by a parole board is subject to, like, oversight review by the governor. Mm -hmm. And it's ultimately the governor who decides one way or the other. You know, in, in Texas, if the parole board recommends parole, the governor of Texas can grant it, but he can also deny it. Okay. So, and what Van Houten's doing is she's testing the grounds on which Governor Brown based his denial.
0: Hmm. Okay. Okay.
1: So.
2: That kind of that kind of seems like it might not be the exact best thing to go after. I don't know if it's the only way yeah. she had to go test in that, but. That don't seem like, hey, the governor's an asshole for this. It doesn't seem like the best way to get out of jail.
1: Yeah. Well, what we may do is we may do an update show um, mm-hmm. after we get through the schedule that we have. And um, mm-hmm. I'll go over like Van Houten and, and Reed and you know some of these other cases where there have been Kind of bigger developments and and more pleadings and things like that filed to okay. kind of to review things. Yeah, we'll okay. we'll do that, and I'll I'll go over the parole for the Manson people is uh it is a pretty complicated issue, but trying to explain how the parole system works in California, and you know and and that's another thing too is people don't often recognize or understand it can be different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Uh-huh. State to state. Um right. so but yeah I'll I'll do some research on that and but like I said I think the parole board members are currently more progressive and so they uh-huh. believe in second chances. Right. You know, and, and so they're not looking at the facts of the crime that she committed, and balancing that against whatever positive change she's made in her life. But I, I don't find I've watched several of her interviews. I really don't find that she's made that much change because she continues to try to say it was the drugs, it was Charlie, it wasn't something, you know. Fundamentally wrong with me. I'm a good person.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: it was these things that made me do what I did. And it's like, no, that you did what you did means you're not fundamentally a good person. Right,
2: absolutely.
1: And she really wasn't. She had a history of uh, oppositional behavior with her parents, using drugs and uh, running away and uh, criminal activity even before she met Charlie Manson.
0: hmm Right.
1: So, you know, she just found somebody that brought out the worst.
2: Yeah, that knew how to pull her strings.
1: Yeah. So, oh. all right. Well, we have a lot of material tonight, and <laughs> I'm <laughs> hoping that we will get through it all, no, you don't.
2: I promise I do. It's something okay, we what's talked that? about last week. It's something we talked about last week. So I know okay. before we went on the air that uh, you don't know about the storming of Area 51. So I'm not sure if you've heard about that. <laughs> but okay that the uh, ice cream lickers have now moved on to new substances.
1: Oh, Lord. What now?
2: Our Taco Bell tacos are no longer safe.
1: Oh, well, that's cool. Uh, (laughs) I don't like Taco Bell.
2: Apparently, a video of an employee shows uh, that he proceeded to lick all the hard-shelled tacos. And not even our deodorant is safe. Because I personally saw a video that shows this girl that's probably all of 15, 16, proceeding to use some deodorant and put it back. Now, that one's not as heinous to me, though. Because, I mean, at least she's using deodorant. And she ain't people with a tank.
1: But, well, yeah, but deodorant comes with a, a plastic lip, or, or, you know, a plastic wrap around the top. So if you buy, you buy something at the store. Huh? What degree
2: do you buy? There? I see my degree I, I never done. I don't know that degree. I it was a blue it was a blue thing of deodorant, a light blue color. But I just remember I uh-huh. was looking at that and I was like, Well, I mean, at least you ain't stinking the joint out. Shoot.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but yeah, I thought you'd get a kick. Oh uh, quick.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, my, most of the deodorants I've bought have the little plastic thing around the top. If it's in there, don't buy it. Yeah, I ain't never
2: seen that. Now I have seen. Uh, I have now seen, not. You know, it, you know that's the, that.
1: the that's the roll on stick. I mean, oh, if you okay. buy the can with the aerosol deodorant, it may not. But I mean, it's aerosol. You're spraying out. You're not introducing anything in.
2: True. True. Yeah. If you're the introducing something up, in, food, but...
1: yeah. Now I'm talking about roll-ons.
2: Yeah, I've never seen the uh, roll-on with it, but I mean, damn it, again, Michael.
1: I... Now when I go to Rouse's tomorrow, I'm gonna have to go to the deodorant aisle, and I'll have to examine all the de- deodorant. <laughs> no
2: last week i uh asked my girlfriend i said haley bring home some ice cream and some root beer because i forgot she texted me back quicker than anything it said um no do you know what's going on with this ice cream right now i said damn it but yeah. uh, but um, actually, another follow up, I found out about this and didn't even think about it when you have mentioned it. You know what's bad? The cheap ice cream does already come with the plastic on it. Like the great value has plastic over it.
1: Uh-huh.
2: It's the expensive yeah. ice cream that does.
1: Yeah, well, what they're probably going to have to do is they're going to have to, Bluebell's probably going to have to install the equipment. To put the little plastic sleeve thing mm-hmm. around the top of the container. Yeah. because yeah, Haagen and well, Haagen comes with the little plastic over the um over the top, which can be annoying as hell to oh, try yeah. to get off because sometimes it comes off in little strips.
2: Yep. See, I buy those uh, little Starbucks drinks, uh, them little glass bottle drinks of the morning at work if I don't bring my coffee. And uh yeah, trust me, I fight with those little some bitches.
1: <laughs> so but, hey, at least anyway. sure nobody's
2: drinking my Starbucks. Yeah. <laughs>
1: All right. So um Suzanne Marie Collins. Um, she is the victim. She was a lance corporal in the U.S. Marine Corps, stationed at Naval Air Na- Naval Support Activity Mil- Millington in 1985. A little bit of bra- background, and I don't have this on the um, on the uh, the outline, but I wanted to go ahead and give you a little bit of background on her parents. Uh, Jack and Trudy. Okay. Uh, They were from Long Island. They met while they were in, I think, high school. And they got married in 1956. After getting engaged in August, Uh, Jack started working with the uh, State Department They weren't able to have children of their own, and so they wanted to adopt. Unfortunately, when they went to Catholic Charities of Northern Virginia, they found that they were a mixed marriage, and the Catholic Charities would not give them a child. They were a mixed marriage because Jack was Catholic and Trudy was an Episcopal. And in the 1960s, that was not considered suitable for adoption from a Catholic agency. Um, In August of 1963, Jack was stationed in Syria, and he found out about an orphanage in Beirut, which is the capital of Lebanon. Trudy went to Beirut And she met a young boy who she fell in love with. Jack was able to eventually travel there and meet him as well. And on August 25th, the little boy who had been named Robert Rabbe became their Mm -hmm. son, who they named Stephen Thomas Collins. Okay. Um, Stephen, when they returned to the United States, in 1964, Stephen returned with them, and he became a naturalized citizen on November 9, 1964. Um, Jack continued working for the State Department. He wasn't a, he wasn't an ambassador, but he was attached to the diplomatic missions um, as a a State Department foreign services uh personnel in march of 1967 jack was attending mass and he found a bulletin that announced that catholic charities had changed their policies on adoption and that they now only required one parent be catholic so he and trudy immediately uh reached out to Catholic Charities in the hopes of adopting a second child. By the summer of 1967, they met a little girl who had been named Regina Celeste. Um, They fell immediately in love with her. She had had a very difficult beginning to her life. She had been born to an unwed teenage mother, ended up in foster care, um, had three – one successful placement with a military family who had to be – who were transferred, so she had to go back to foster services, and then two unsatisfactory placements from whom she was removed. Um, so uh, she'd actually been given up for adoption. They fell in love with her. They adopted her. They changed her name to Suzanne, not wanting Stephen to feel slighted. They told him that he they had specifically picked her out the same way they'd picked him out, and that they were both special. Um right. And Stephen immediately bonded with Suzanne. They mm-hmm. named her Suzanne Marie. Uh, Stephen immediately bonded with her, and throughout her life, he looked out for her. She was his little sister, and um, they were very close. And Suzanne was, in spite of her tough beginning, she was a very happy child. She was a very compliant child, but she was also a very inquisitive child. Uh, She was always testing things and trying to... To figure things out and when she got a little older she started kind of testing the boundaries with her parents um, the family because of Jack's foreign service they, they had been in Sweden before they adopted Suzanne they went to Greece and Stephen and uh, Suzanne went to school in Greece for several years and then they came back to the United States and settled in Madison, Wisconsin, while Jack was part of a stateside program, learning about our government so that they can better explain them in, you know, to foreign countries and foreign dignitaries, etc. Um, so uh, they – eventually he left the service. And they came to Virginia. Uh, Suzanne graduated from Robert E. Lee High School in uh, Springfield, Virginia, I believe it was. She had not done, let's see, she wasn't on top of the class. She had a very busy social life and uh, studying just wasn't her favorite thing to do, and so um, she really didn't have the grades for college, Right. and this would have been 1984, in June of 1984. Um, And so she decided to join the United States Marine Corps. So she graduated on like June 6th 1984, and enlisted in the Marine Corps on June 24th. And I have to say that she really had a lot of guts to do that because in 1980s, with women in any of the armed forces, it was a very, very tough road to hoe. I have several friends who tried and did not succeed. Who ended up leaving basic training? Um, I have right. some that made it, and um, you know, did their enlistment, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't, it wasn't something they loved. Right.
2: But I think part I mean, of that it was nowadays, it was it was
1: so difficult.
2: Even nowadays, I mean, you still see. I went, I say nowadays. I haven't been in in what almost eight years now. But you know, you still see in modern times, you know, a little bit of decisiveness or divisiveness. Excuse me, between males and females in the military.
1: Yeah, um, I think it's. I, I think it's better than it was in the eighties.
2: Oh, I can't um it
1: there. I, I, there's a lot more because I think attitudes of of children of the '70s were boys have a role and girls have a role, and never the twain should meet. Right. But um, it's because my my um my cousin went into the navy, mm-hmm. and she was very happy until she was going to have to choose between her husband and her military career. But then she, you know, she'd been in 10 years. She was able to leave the Navy, you know, retire from the Navy and um, not, you know, not have any, you know, consequences or negative. And it was all positive. Although she, I think she kind of regretted having to do that. Right. But uh, he had stood by her during a deployment, and I think he just didn't want to see her go. She was being transferred to another post, and you know that was going to take him away from his family and friends and job and and all those things. So, um, yeah. but it was a little difficult. A little difficult. So. Oh, I'm sure. But, uh, uh, and by the way, Suzanne's birthday was June 8th, 1966. So she was just a little bit less than two years younger than I am. Okay. Um. So anyway, so she joined the Marine Corps, and her dream was to do two things, to accomplish two things after, you know, from the Marine Corps. The first was to be appointed to the U.S. Naval Academy. Um, And then the second was to become one of the first female Marine pilots.
2: Hmm. That's pretty damn
1: awesome. Um, Yeah. And, you know, uh, the Marines didn't start really allowing females to to be pilots until about 1992. Uh-huh. But I think she would have made it because <laughs> she would have done right. whatever she had to do in order to, to meet that goal. And there are a couple of women I read about today who um, they, you know, took, got their pilot's licenses and took flight lessons and did all those things. And then in 92, when it was opened up to them, they were right there. Uh, right. And in combat, I think, was in 2000. They didn't allow women to fly combat missions until about 2003.
2: I was about to say, combat was especially recent. Because I'm not mm-hmm. even sure if women can still fight on the front lines. If they can, it's really, really super.
1: Yeah. Um... No, I don't think they're they're really allowed in combat, but they are allowed in support positions. I mean, you know, yeah. one of the one of the girl one of the there was a woman who was taken captive in, I believe it was Afghanistan. She was part of the supply, so she was on the front lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, but okay. she wasn't part of the combat uh, or the infantry.
2: Okay. But they're
1: still at risk. They're still at risk.
2: Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Um so uh Suzanne went to boot camp at Paris Island, which is in South Carolina. She excelled there. Um and do you did you know I didn't know this until a friend of mine, her son joined the Marines. If you lived on the east side of the Mississippi, you went to Paris Island in South Carolina. If uh-huh. you lived on the west side of the Mississippi, you went to Oceanside California.
2: Yep. Actually, and I mean I could be wrong. I know the Army has multiple locations for basic training. I know the Marines mm-hmm. obviously do. Uh not yeah. So, I think the May be singular, and I know the Air Force is singular as far as Lackland. Yeah. The
1: singular location. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember where the Navy is. If my uncle Gary is listening, maybe he can call in and tell us. And he could. Yeah, he I, could also I, call in with some stories about uh, not only the Marine Corps but Paris Island, because he went through Paris Island.
2: I know it's Naval Station Great Lakes and I believe it's right outside of Chicago.
1: Chicago, yeah. I, I think so cuz that's where I think cuz that's where Lainey was.
0: Mm-hmm. Cuz I
1: remember her mom and and my uncle talking about uh trips to go up to visit her. And okay. My uncle had gotten one of the one of the early GPS units. Oh wow. And um my aunt was uh teasing him because he was following the GPS unit even though it took him into construction and heavy traffic.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and
1: things like that. And to this day the GPS unit drives my sister nuts. Oh, it will. I
2: turn it off until um, I absolutely don't know where I'm going.
1: Right. And you know, I usually have it when I don't know where I'm going. Or when I go somewhere, even though I've been there before and I kind of know how to get there, like when I go see Mike the Tiger, I always have my GPS because I'm not familiar with Baton Rouge. Okay.
0: Um,
1: But anyway, so, yeah, so she went to Paris Island. She did well in boot camp. Um, She was sent from boot camp to Naval Support Activity, Millington, Tennessee which is right outside north of Memphis. Right. Um,
2: Actually,
1: she... Yeah, down the road. Yep, down the road. Um, Mark Byers lived there. I don't know if he still lives there, but <laughs> right. he lived there at one time. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, he I was living that. in Millington when I met him. Um, yeah. She was at... Uh, let's see. She was at Millington, I think she went to Millington in about October of 1984. Um, Not too long after she went to Millington, she was doing avionics training, which was training to work on airplanes. That's right. She She was promoted to Lance Corporal from private, first class. Which is pretty impressive.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: She, you know, she had hadn't even been in the Marines a year, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and she also qualified for the honor desk, which was for the top of the class, the most. I mean, not only did you have to be, uh, you know, physical training all the ideals of Marine Corps, but also um, your schoolwork had to be top, you know, top no, notch. And uh, your character, it was, you know, character and, and fitness and all those things. So that oh, that's yeah. a pretty high honor. It was also mm-hmm. a little difficult at first because it's a male-dominated society within right. the Marine Corps. But Suzanne was tough, and she dealt with it, and she actually was able to earn the respect of her fellow Marines. And, in fact, she and another uh, Marine friend, Susan, were the only women that the guys invited to play on their soccer team. Uh
0: Uh-huh.
1: So she was... um, that's another thing. Everything I've read about Suzanne Collins over the years and I've read many times about this, you know, this particular case. Right. She was one of those people that was nice to everyone. She cared about everyone. She was a beautiful girl. She was from a relatively privileged background. But she could be friends with everyone and friendly to everyone. And, you know, not a mean girl just a really, truly good, caring individual. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, she was due to graduate from her training on July 12, 1985, and she had been assigned to go to NSA Cherry Point, North Carolina, once she graduated. Uh huh. So um, that was it. She she wanted to end up in California, but even that, it, you know, nothing she couldn't handle. She'd go to Cherry Point. She'd you know do her job and and be a good Marine until she could get the opportunity to go to California. Right. You know, there was still this leaving, oh, well, I can't go to California, then I'm not going to be a Marine anymore, which is how a lot of millennials and 19-year-olds now would handle it. Oh, you aren't
2: lying. I mean, the thing is, you know, it it used to be the running joke that if you wanted to go to a base, you shouldn't put it on what they call the dream sheet, which is where you put all the bases, obviously, you want to go to. Right. But they will never send you there. And that's the thing, you
1: know. Yeah, that, I, uh, it, it, I think, you're, the, I think for, for just about any branch of the armed forces, though, I think your first, after boot camp and after whatever training they send you to, your first assignment is wherever the hell they want you to go.
2: Basically. And
1: you don't have any say in that. Basically. And it's after that first one that you get you get to start having some input into where you might go.
2: Right, right, absolutely. So Once you get my, right. my uncle
1: ended up at the DMC in North Korea Whew. at one point. See, I
2: couldn't complain <laughs> about that though, because I heard Korea was a pretty cool. Time.
1: Yeah, and he, was in, he went to Okinawa as well. Mm-hmm. But he also got to go, he got to, uh, he was posted in California for a time, <laughs> so he got to spend time with um, mem- with family members from his mother's side.
2: Uh-huh. Okay.
1: So um, but uh, so that's, that's pretty much Suzanne Collins uh, up to July 11th. The morning of July 11th, let's say. Okay. And then Sedley Alley um, I don't have a lot of information about his early life. He was from Kentucky. The impression I got from the different sources is that we, he was probably from that area of Kentucky that is close to Ohio. Mm-hmm. Because he had med- uh-huh. some medical problems as a child. And he had some hospitalizations in Ohio.
2: Okay.
1: Okay. Kentucky is, Kentucky is, and parts of Ohio are interesting because you have, you've got Kentucky and you've got West Virginia, you've got Pennsylvania. And in a couple of areas, like we were talking about Ohio last year, last week, and that's right across the state line from Pennsylvania. Right. In Youngstown, Ohio. So, um, or fairly close. But uh, mm-hmm. he was from Kentucky. Uh, he was born with some medical problems. He had kidney problems, which were congenital. He had an, a smaller than average penis.
2: Well,
1: and okay. apparently some issues with the uh, function and had to have several surgeries on the urethra which is not a Japanese monster. Um, And as a child, basically the urethra was too narrow. And so they had to make it bigger. And I've had male cats that had that same problem. And it can cause serious illnesses um, because they can't eliminate Toxins and things like that from their from their bodies, and so the toxins build up, and it, you can get quite sick from it. So, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm making light of it, but, um, um, and then there were also allegations of abuse in the family. Okay. Um, I think Allie was a strange. Child and became a stranger person. Yeah. As he grew, it's the impression I get. Um, his physical problems, though, the medical issues couldn't have been that bad because he was able to join the Navy. And he served in the Navy for a short time. However, his alcohol and drug abuse led to uh, problems. During his service. And he was also at one point suspected and questioned about murders that occurred near the bases where he was stationed. But there was never any evidence or any charges filed.
2: Right.
1: Um, Eventually, uh, the alcohol and drug abuse led to either a dishonorable a dishonorable discharge or an other than honorable discharge. Okay. And that would have been sometime in the late, mid to late 70s. He was born in 1955.
2: Okay, so he was quite a bit older.
1: Yeah. Um, So after he was discharged from the Navy, he went back to presumably Kentucky he got married and had two children, and then his wife, his first wife, Deborah, died suddenly. Um, all I've been able to find out is that she was found in the bathtub, I think face down, she had thrown up, and she had a French fry lodge in her throat.
2: I'm not going to laugh, because
1: that will make the you the death was ruled as accidental, but some members of her family had their suspicions.
2: Hold on. But there was no, never... I'm not saying this guy. This guy obviously is no saint, but I mean, it sounds like, honestly, if I'm just thinking the way you described it, it sounds like she got too drunk and choked on her vomit. Right,
1: and that's, that's part of the problem. Um, they both used alcohol and drugs, and and they both abused alcohol and drugs. Uh-huh. And so, someone who has that history of abuse of alcohol and drugs sometimes can, you know, throw up and choke on something because of their level of intoxication, either from alcohol, drugs, or both. So right. that's you know, like I said, some of her some of her family members suspected Allie.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, because he he gave more than one person over his life a, a weird uncomfortable feeling. Let's put it that way. Um, his his grandparents got custody of his children. His parents got custody of his children after his wife's death, and he moved to Michigan. Uh, there he met a woman by the name of Lynn, and um, she was very young. She was about 15, and this would have been in the early 80s. Present. And he, uh, well, no, because in the early 80s, it wasn't that big a deal. <laughs> no shit. Um, but he, you know, he and he formed a relationship with her. She ended up quitting school, and then he brought her to Kentucky and got married.
2: I'm sure her parents were thrilled about this guy.
1: I bet you they were. <laughs> but um, although I think she had kind of a dysfunctional family, so he uh, may have he may have, um, you know, formed a relationship with her because of the dysfunction in her family. That kind of gave him the freedom to do whatever the hell he wanted, and not having any consequences. Not to it. make
2: light of the situation, but daddy issues.
1: Possible, probably. So yeah. anyway, um, they did get married, and she eventually got her GED, and you know she wanted more from life. And so she ended up joining the Navy. And she went to her basic training, and then she was assigned to Naval Support Activity Millington in Tennessee. And in spite of her doubts about her marriage or her husband, she obtained housing on base for both of them. And mm-hmm. he came from Kentucky to Millington, Tennessee. Okay. Um, and unfortunately, the uh, abuse in their marriage continued. Uh, of course. And there was also abuse in the first marriage, um, which I forgot to mention. So they came to, he came to Tennessee to be with her and they were living on base. Um and just to go into something a little bit and we'll talk about it in more depth next week on the naval support activities. Um entry what they weren't open like Fort Bragg was. You okay. had to have a sticker on your car, you had to have a you know, a military or dependent ID or be with a military you know, member in order to gain access yep. to the base. We had a Naval support activity here in Algiers where I grew up and I had a friend, her dad was in the Navy. And I remember once we were going to the base to play tennis and I got there early to meet her and I uh-huh. had to pull off in a little parking area next to the guard shack yeah, and wait in my hot car for my friend to get there with her Pass for her yeah, her military. She I had a dependent know. ID, and I actually had to leave my car in that little parking area mm-hmm. and ride in her car over the tennis courts. Yeah. I was not now. My dad was a my dad was in the Coast Guard reserves, and so he had an ID. And he could do whatever – he he'd go to the base, he could shop at the PX, he could do whatever he wanted, but we didn't qualify for dependent IDs. Right. And so the only time we could ever go to the PX or the BX was when he was doing his active duty because then we got – we each got dependent – temporary dependent ID cards. Right. So um, the only reason Allie was on that base was because he was living there due to the fact that his wife was an active-duty member of the U.S. Navy.
2: Yeah, makes sense.
1: So um, anyway, so uh, Allie had a hard time keeping a job. The drug and alcohol issues will do that. Okay. Um, Yeah. Initially, he worked for a convenience store, but then money and probably product and things like that started going missing, and so he didn't keep that job long. Excuse me. Pardon me. Oh, dear. And then he went to work for a heating and air company, but he was apparently stealing equipment and things from that company. And so that job would have probably, you know, gone nowhere as well. Right. And that's where we come to July 11th, 1985. Uh why don't we go ahead and have our break? Okay. And then um We'll get back and go into uh, The case
2: Okay, sounds good Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to uh, Clear and Convincing We'll be right back after this
0: How can I convince you What you see Doubting what you feel I was always reaching You were just a girl I knew I took the granted The friend I have in you I was living for a dream loving for a moment Taking on Saturday, June 29th, it's Redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas Wrestling Organization. See Arkansas favorites like Cataclysm, Ace of Mota, the original original Misfit, Josh Josh Cross, Cross, Suicide King, King, Ray Ray. Stain Shane, and current AWO champion, d Mike As they battle for redemption this Saturday in Ola at 307 West Hill Street. Doors open at 530. Concessions will be available. And this is a family-friendly show with kids under six getting in free. It's redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas Wrestling Organization.
1: A family friendly. There was a video on Facebook over the weekend.
2: Oh Lord. Uh huh.
1: And I couldn't really see well on my phone.
2: Oh no! I know what you're talking about. Oh no, that wasn't our family
1: friendly show. <laughs> it didn't look very family friendly.
2: No, nope, that's our bar show that we have on Tuesdays in Hot Springs at Rivers Bar and Grill. And yes, I did participate in the lap dance
1: Monday. <laughs> so who was yeah, no, the dancey? Really
2: <laughs> There's a second
1: there video you
2: is. should get the featured.
1: Yeah, I I I saw those. I was looking on my phone, um, and I. I am going to go on your um I'm going to go on your your walls or whatever the hell Facebook calls it now and uh mm-hmm. look at those on my laptop.
2: Yeah, they're both hilarious.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, all right, so we're to July 11th and um Suzanne had gone to school done her job that day, Uh, her friend, who was also in avionics training and was getting ready to graduate the following day, uh, her mother and sister were in town. They were all going to go to Germantown to have dinner with friends of Susan's family. But just as they were getting ready to leave, the um, sergeant assigned Suzanne as the duty NCO. And your time in the Air Force, you probably have had that pleasure as well.
0: I have, of course.
1: So, um, and I think because they were getting ready to graduate, they were kind of, I, I think, kind of restricted the base. Right. I'm not really sure. But, um, yeah, so they were, they were, um, she had to do that. So she got to spend the evening of July 11th sitting at a desk and checking people in and out um, of whatever, <laughs> whatever that means. I don't, I've never been in the military, so I don't really know. And then, you know, you make your periodic rounds uh-huh. to make sure everything's all all good and um, on another part of the base Allie had been drinking because he apparently only worked part time and he and his wife had a fight and she left with two friends to go to a Tupperware party which pissed him off apparently so he (laughs) remains at the house or the apartment I think it was an apartment, drinking. He drank, he had already had a six-pack of beer. He had a second six-pack of beer and a fifth of wine. Damn. And when there was no more alcohol left, he decides to get in his 1972 Mercury Colony Park station wagon and go get more liquor or more beer. And um, Suzanne, around 10 o'clock, she was relieved of duty. She went back to her barracks. She changed into her running gear because the base gym had been closed by the time she got done. And she needed to work out because, you know, part of the Marines are the physical fitness standards are very, very... Um they're very serious about physical fitness, and so if she couldn't go yeah. work out, she needed to go for a run and She went out it was about between ten and ten thirty and she went out for a run on the base at some right. point um, between ten thirty and eleven eleven fifteen she encounters Allie. There was an interesting theory in one of the appellate opinions that I read. Apparently that day Allie and his boss had installed an air pump or some other equipment in a an admiral's house on the base. Mm-hmm. And Later that night, the air pump was observed in Allie's car, and the following day, the boss determined that the air pump was no longer at the admiral's house. And in a search of Allie's residence, they found the air pump in a a shed out back. Right. So I personally think that what happened was that Allie saw Suzanne as he was going back to his car with the stolen air pump, and Suzanne saw him with the stolen air pump, and And she probably let him know he was doing something wrong. Right. And so he had to shut her up, and that led to him beating her and then throwing her into his car. And kidnapping her. Right. Um, I I read a theory, um, John Douglas, and I remember reading this in his one of his first books, Journey into Darkness, that he maybe tricked her by asking, you know, pulling over and asking directions. But I think it was more that she saw him putting something in his car near an admiral's house, and probably knew he wasn't supposed to be there. And she probably spoke up because that was the kind of person she was. Right. And uh, he beat her and kidnapped her. There were three witnesses. There was a Navy enlisted uh, member who saw a woman jogging, or what he perceived to be a woman and a man jogging probably mm-hmm. Suzanne being chased down by Allie. And what? he saw a vehicle parked where uh, where Allie later admitted he had parked. Mm-hmm. And then there were two other witnesses, two Marines who had passed Suzanne as they were running. They were going north. She was going south. Um, they suddenly heard screams and turned and ran back. They heard a woman screaming, get away from me, leave me alone, or don't touch me, or something along those lines.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: so they ran back to where they heard the screams, and they saw a uh, a Ford or Mercury station wagon. They believed it was green with wood paneling and Kentucky license plates driving away. They could see a man and a woman in a car, but they didn't really get a good look at either of the people. Right. They immediately ran and reported what they'd seen to the guard at the guard shack. Just prior to them getting to the guard shack, the guard had seen the Mercury station wagon with the Kentucky plates leaving the base with a man and a woman. And he didn't really think anything of it.
0: Uh Um,
1: These Marines didn't know who Suzanne was. The guard didn't really, you know, didn't know who Suzanne was, didn't connect it. And they didn't really, they didn't know this is definitely a kidnapping. It didn't look right and something needed, it needed to be checked out. But they didn't really know. And so yeah. um, Allie had been able to leave the base before the Marines could notify the guard, and he went to Edmund Orville Park, which is off the base nearby. And this is a huge uh-huh. park. It's, it's a golf course on one side and, like, a picnic area with a lake in the middle. Right. And so... So he took her off the base. Right. And uh, basically got to the park. Uh, He had already beaten her, probably beat her some more, took her out of the car, realized there was no turning back. He had to kill her. And then he decided to try and make it look like a... You know, sexual maniac had gotten her while jogging in Orgill Park. And Mm -hmm. so he took her clothes off. He took a tree limb and he used, he took a 31 inch limb from a tree. And I think he broke it off the tree. And then he used that to sexually assault her. Oh dear Lord! Yes, um, and I've Good. debated. I've debated with myself how much detail, um, because we'll it, it was be brutal. It was brutal. It was horrible. Um, it caused her death. People <laughs> near the park heard screaming. They heard a blood curdling scream, and they alerted sheriff's deputies. Um, but then, you know, the scream stopped and they didn't know where it had come from. Uh, okay. sheriffs were in the park also to, to I think to check on a report of gunshots. And they encountered Allie. Allie claimed to have been running in the park, but he wasn't wearing running clothes.
0: Right. and
1: even though it was a hot humid july night the only moisture on his shirt was around his collar mm-hmm. and i think his hair was wet so he probably cleaned himself up a little bit in a lake or at a mm-hmm. water fountain or you know a hose or somewhere um and so the sheriff because they see he's from the base, they turn him over to Naval Investigative Service. Naval Investigative Service is trying to figure out what's going on. They had a right. bolo out on on the car. And so, and I think that's also why when the sheriffs encountered him, they turned him over because of the bolo for the car. And so then right. the investigative service questioned him and questioned his wife and they had called the two Marines back to their office. And the two Marines identified the car, but they couldn't really tell if Allie was the same person they had seen or not. They didn't get a good look at the people in the vehicle. And uh-huh. they weren't sure if his wife was the woman they'd seen.
2: Okay.
1: So um, they released Allie, and apparently, as he was starting his car in the parking lot to leave, the two Marines said, hey, 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 that is the car, because it had a very, very loud muffler, and it was in bad shape. Um, He had to use a screwdriver to start it. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, they were able to, by sound, identify the vehicle, but there wasn't any evidence um, because, again, they couldn't tell whether his wife was the woman they'd seen or not. And so he and the wife were released, and the Navy investigators watched them, like, you know, did surveillance on the house or whatever, the apartment or wherever they lived. About 6 o'clock the next morning, Suzanne's body was discovered in Orville Park. Her clothing was there. The tree branch was still there. They also found a screwdriver with blood on it. hmm That had been the screwdriver that Allie had been using to start his car. Oh, okay. Okay. So um, they immediately arrested Allie. They brought him in. Initially, he declined to answer any questions without an attorney, and so they left him in a room, eventually fed him some breakfast, got him some coffee, let him smoke some cigarettes, and then he agreed to talk to them. And In talking to them, he chose to give them a self-serving confession in which he tried to minimize his culpability for Suzanne's death Mm-hmm. basically he said I was driving drunk I accidentally hit her I put her in my car to take her to the hospital she was calling me names and yelling at me and threatening to get me in trouble and so I panicked and I went to the park and she kept saying she was going to get me in trouble and so I decided that I had to make it look like a sex maniac killed her.
2: Yeah, because that totally makes sense.
1: And so um, uh, also he admitted later, which we'll get into a little bit later, that he actually had false details in his confession to try and – undermine the credibility of the police reports.
0: Mhm.
1: And you know, this is another interesting thing is that when he confessed he confessed to the naval investigative people. And then after the confession he took them to Oregon Park and led them to the crime scene. Mhm. Going so far as to point out the tree from which he had taken the branch used to assault Suzanne Collins. Okay. Because he was not in the military, uh, the naval authorities turned him over to the civilian authorities in Shelby County, and they resumed picked up the investigation and prosecution from there. Uh-huh. So um, Allie was indicted on capital murder, aggravated rape, and aggravated kidnapping. Uh-huh. Uh He was arraigned shortly after that, and the Shelby County public defender was assigned to defend him because he was indigent. Um, He underwent mental evaluations from January of 1986 to roughly February of 1987, including several months in a mental health hospital in Memphis and then a second hospital in Nashville. Um, Over the course of the evaluation trial was postponed and pushed back and continued multiple times once the mental Uh evaluations were finished and the reports were in uh, the judge set the trial for late February or early March the public defender's office excuse me wanted more months to prepare and the judge said no he wasn't giving him any more time. Um, the evaluations were concluded, and that was it. <laughs> and mm. he eventually, though, he did give them a short continuance, um, and the trial began with jury selection on March 9th, and then trial evidence from March 10th to the 18th. All right. Uh, The case for the prosecution, they have three eyewitnesses to parts of what happened. They have the evidence that they found at the scene with Suzanne's body. They have the vehicle. There was some blood on the vehicle, blood inside the vehicle. There was some blood that was too – the samples were too small, to do any testing to determine species or blood type, if it was human blood. But there were some samples that were type O blood, which was consistent with both Suzanne Collins and Sedley Alley. There were also right. hairs found in Sedley Alley's vehicle that were consistent with Suzanne Collins hair.
0: uh-huh.
1: Um, and then there was Allie's confession, even though the jury knew that Suzanne Collins wasn't hit by a car and the jury knew that he didn't shove a screwdriver in her head. Cause that was, that was what he claimed is he hit her with the car. And then at the park, she was threatening to get him in trouble. So he shoved the screwdriver in her head. The jury knew that those two things did not happen. And they had testimony also from one of the, Social workers or counselors at one of the hospitals, who whom Allie had told, oh yeah, you know I said some stuff that wasn't right because I wanted it to look like the police reports were wrong, right? You know, Um, and so they had a they had a pretty strong case, like I said, and and Allie's confession is corroborated by the findings of the blood and, and the hairs in his vehicle, the screwdriver at the scene, and the fact that he led the NIS investigators to the crime scene in Orville Park off the base. Uh uh-huh. um, The entire defense case was insanity based on multiple personality disorder. Um, okay. Two, a psychiatrist and psychologist uh, diagnosed Allie with multiple personality disorder. They had done a hypnosis interview and sodium ametol interviews, in which they believed an alternate personality uh, took over and interacted with them. Um, however. One of the problems with that was that ultimately at trial, neither one was able to testify that an alternate personality was actually in control at the time of Lance Corporal Collins' murder.
0: Uh Uh-huh.
1: And they also could not testify that any of the authors were insane and didn't know the meaning of right and wrong. So, um, and the state also had, you know, several of the doctors who had examined Allie over the course of, what, 11 months, who did not believe that he was insane, um, who did not believe that he had multiple personality disorder, and who believed that he was malingering or faking in order to escape responsibility for his conduct. True. So, um, the case went to the jury at, I think, three in the afternoon, and within a couple of hours, they were back with the guilty verdict in the guilt and innocent face. The... Penalty phase began immediately, and the jury – the state didn't put on any more evidence because they had put on their evidence during the guilt phase. Allie didn't put on any other evidence because their, uh, their witnesses, their experts had talked about Allie's medical issues and surgeries and early life and problems in life and drug abuse and everything else. So they felt like they had presented enough evidence for the jury to uh, give him. And they argued for mercy. Um, The jury went out about 8 o'clock and came back with a death sentence plus 40 years on the aggravated rape and 40 years on the aggravated kidnapping to be served consecutively. And that means – If the death sentence had been vacated and he'd been judged insane and not responsible for the murder but responsible for the aggravated rape and the aggravated kidnapping, just as a hypothetical, he would have Uh to serve 40 years or whatever the minimum is on a 40-year sentence before being eligible for parole – Once he finished that first stint, he'd have to do the next 40 years or whatever. You know, if it's if you serve two thirds of the time in Tennessee, Uh
0: um,
1: for example, if you're sentenced to 40 years and you can get out in 25, he would have to serve 25 and then serve another 25, and then he would have been eligible. For parole consideration. That's how consecutive sentences work. Concurrent right. sentences are where you get you get 40 years and you serve 25 and you're done.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All right. So uh, <clears throat> he, uh, Allie went to death row in, I think it was Riverbend. And then his direct appeal was filed and the issues that they raised, none of the issues dealt with the evidence, the sufficiency of the evidence or Ali's guilt or innocence. All of the uh, issues that they raised were more or less evidentiary issues. They, they, They argued that there was victim impact evidence through Suzanne's father during the guilt phase, and that was prejudicial. The uh, Tennessee Supreme Court – that's an appeal of right, so it's an an automatic appeal. Um, The Tennessee Supreme Court found that while it was not admissible per se – it was harmless error because it was one small part in the early part of the trial and the evidence of Ali's guilt was I think they called it um beyond question. So it didn't impact the jury's finding of guilt. All right. Um they complained about errors during Wadir There were two jurors during Voidir who expressed an inability to uh, – well, an inability to sentence somebody to death. Right. And although not unusual, uh, the judge did get a little bit more into questioning those jurors.  … … or prospective jurors than some judges would, because he kind of took over the questioning from the prosecutioner. And then he also – Ali also complained that the judge would not allow them to try and re- rehabilitate one of the prospective jurors. But the Supreme Court found that um, neither of the jurors… Qualified because neither of them could sentence somebody to death. And that was clear okay. from the record. Um, and that the one that the, the defense claimed they hadn't been allowed to rehabilitate could not have been rehabilitated. He was unequivocally opposed to the death penalty.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, then another error that they raised was during the first two days of the trial, a 16-by-20-inch photograph of Suzanne was displayed in the courtroom for the jury. The defense objected at the end of the first day, and the judge overruled the objection. Then on the third day, I believe, he actually told the prosecutor that they could not display that picture. They needed to find another one if they wanted to display one. So the prosecutor then replaced a larger picture with a a smaller picture. Um, again, the Supreme Court found that there was no error in that. Um, that basically you know the the victim is a part of the case. And so displaying a picture and reminding the jurors that Suzanne Collins was a living, breathing human being. Is not improper.
0: Yeah. Well, and
1: again, there was no, you know, the the prosecutor didn't point to the picture or or do anything other than leave the picture up as a reminder to the jurors. And so they found that that could, you know, probably did not have any impact on the verdict. Again, in light of all the evidence of Ali's guilt.
2: Yeah, I mean, at first there um, may be a little bit of a shock factor, but then there's it's going to wear off eventually.
1: Mhm. And the the prosecutor, like I said, the prosecutor didn't draw any attention to the photograph. Um, he didn't point to it or refer to it during opening or questioning of witnesses or or any of those things. And then they complained about the admission of testimony from one of the witnesses who was a social worker on the characteristics of multiple personality disorder and malingering. And um, she was the witness who <clears throat> Ali had admitted to giving false statements in his confession uh, in order to try to undermine the evidence against him and um, she testified about the characteristics of multiple personality disorder, which usually in the psychological realm, um, multiple personality disorder develops generally during adolescence, and it's actually more prevalent in girls because, of course, the origins are believed to be due to Physical and/or sexual abuse during early childhood. Right. And um, in, as far as demographics, girls are more more often abused in that way. Um, and again, you know, Allie was almost thirty years old. When the crime occurred and nothing in his history, adolescence or even early adulthood suggested multiple personality disorder or that he suffered from multiple personalities. And then the testimony about malingering dealt with um, the fact that Allie seemed to um, act totally normal among the other patients but then complained about things to the doctors and the counselors who worked with him. So among the patients, he was fine, normal, but then when he saw the doctors, he talked about he was hallucinating all the time, having nightmares, animals chasing him in his dreams, and, (laughs) you know, things like that. And there was even one point where he complained about having these nightmares and not sleeping, and so they started doing bed checks every fifteen minutes and found Allie sleeping like a baby for several hours yeah. every night. Well, no sign of nightmares. You know. And uh the Supreme Court found that, that that admitting that testimony was not error, um, that the social worker who worked in that field was qualified to discuss the topics that she testified to, even though she wasn't a doctor of psychology, because she worked with these patients and she observed the patients probably more than the doctors, because it's the, it's the social workers and the uh, psychologist counselors in the hospital setting who deal with the patients on a day-to-day basis. And the psychiatrist and the psychologist see them in group or for individual counseling sessions once or twice a week. Mm -hmm. Um, And then another issue they raised was regarding the cross-examination of uh, one of their defense experts, Dr. Battle, and – It was – they used some treatises to cross-examine him, Um, and basically the court found that that wasn't improper. I think the the biggest complaint was that um, the treatises dealt with two cases that had debunked multiple personality diagnoses. One was one of the hillside stranglers, Kenneth Bianchi. Okay. And so again the court found that that, that was these. within the that was within the acceptable bounds of cross examination.
0: Right.
1: And um the next issue was um the judge had granted a, a motion in limine filed by the state to prevent Allie from, it, from admitting into evidence uh, videotape recordings of hypnosis session and sodium amatol interviews done with Allie, um, which is what formed the basis for the multiple personality diagnoses. And um, one of the complaints was that they found that the judge's reasoning was that he didn't find Allie credible in the tapes, and he believed that the tapes would mislead or confuse the jury. And the um, Tennessee Supreme Court found, again, that that was an error, that – not all evidence is admissible and that the judge didn't abuse his discretion in excluding those tapes under those circumstances for the reasons that the judge found. Um, They also complained about a reference made by the prosecutor to the Bible during cross-examination of Allie's brother during the penalty phase. Um, Again, they found no, uh, no error in that, or that the, 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 the issue didn't have any merit. Um, another was prosecut- prosecutorial misconduct. During cross-examination of Allie's brother, the prosecutor implied that Allie had criminal charges against him in Michigan arising from fighting in Michigan, and the Supreme Court found that that was crossing the line by the prosecutor. He should not have implied that there were charges where none existed, but that it was harmless error because the brother said there were no charges or you know denied the existence of charges, and it didn't go any further than that. And so um, they found, you know, any error was harmless. It didn't affect the verdict. And then they did Uh a mandatory sentence review and found that the death sentence was appropriate. Right. It was not arbitrary. Um, And finally, in their their opinion, because in Tennessee, execution dates are set by the Tennessee Supreme Court. Really they set an execution date, yes, you in Tennessee, you petition the Tennessee Supreme Court for an execution date. The prosecutor so
2: does that take out the whole need for the uh, for one of the appeals to the Supreme Court of Tennessee?
1: No, 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 no. Um, you know, you still, when you're convicted and sentenced, you still have an automatic appeal. But once your automatic appeal is done, and Tennessee may not do it anymore, but once your direct appeal was done, they would set an execution date. And that would keep state post-conviction claims moving along. Um, But uh, otherwise, the prosecutor would ask once there were no pending legal challenges to the conviction or sentence or trial. And um, around this time, maybe a little bit before that, um, Suzanne's parents, Jack and Trudy Collins became victim advocates. Uh, Jack Collins appeared with a state, Attorney General, state legislatures, um, the federal attorney general uh, testified in Congress lobbying for victims' rights. Uh And more likely than not, the eventual adoption of the uh, EDPA, which limited federal habeas review for state cases came about because of Jack Collins and his testimony as a victim's advocate, because one of the things he did testify about was the delays and gaming of the system that he had been observing in not only Suzanne's case, but in other cases around the country. Okay. Yeah, and one of those gaming the systems is systems things is is having an execution date set and then not filing anything until the last minute and asking for a stay of execution.
2: Rodney Reed, or as we
1: saw with Rodney Reed, complaining about an execution date being requested because you intend to file something. As an additional challenge after prior challenges have been dismissed. You know, because you tell the press that you're going to file something at some time, then, you know, the the prosecution doesn't have any right at all to ask for an execution date. Well, Bryce, Bastrop County just lit a fire under your ass, get something filed.
2: Hey, he's going to file something, somewhere, at some time,
1: mm-hmm. someplace. place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if if they hadn't moved for an execution date, he would keep telling the press he's going to do it, he's going to do it, he's going to do it, but he would never do it. So, right. Anyway, so for for some reason that I cannot find the source for, that November thirteenth, nineteen eighty nine date was uh vacated. Right. And a new date of May second, nineteen ninety was set.
2: Do any uh do any first execution dates ever go through? Like your initial execution um, date. Does that ever go through?
1: Well Christina Riggs almost went through but she decided to pursue a direct appeal.
2: Right, it's the last second.
1: In a situation where the person does not want to pursue a direct appeal and is found to be competent to waive direct appeal, it probably would. I'm not I'm not aware of any case that went through and where a pro forma date is set like they do in Arkansas or like they did in Arkansas Um, but it's interesting because I think the procedure in Arkansas is the trial judge sets a first date Uh, upon conviction
2: and I believe that's what happened with Dan
1: then after that it's the governor who seeks the execution yes. date.
2: The governor does seek the execution date in our case.
1: Correct. Yeah. So that that's interesting. I'm not aware of any cases where a first date – and there are some states, I think in California, they don't even bother setting a date because it takes so long for even a direct appeal mm-hmm. to be concluded. i Scott Peterson. His direct appeal – is still pending.
0: Good Lord. And he was
1: convicted 14 years ago. Pardon?
2: Scott was probably going to die in jail anyway, even without this moratorium.
1: He is. He's probably going to die in jail
2: (laughs) without ever being
1: exonerated of old age.
2: Yeah, Yeah, he's going to die of old age.
1: Right. So then um, Ali filed a pro se petition for state post-conviction release. I can't find a, a, a copy of it, but it's possible that he got a petition from an attorney and he just signed it and filed it pro se. Although it may have been a poorly written pro se petition that he actually wrote himself, I'm not sure. Uh, but that was filed on April 25th, 1990. Even though the execution date resetting occurred in like January of 1990. So there you see that's gaming the system because the execution date's May 2nd. You file your petition April 25th. There's not enough time. That date is going to have to be stayed in order for your post-conviction claim to make its way through not only the trial court but the appellate court.
2: Well, Lisa, I got a question, and we all know that uh-huh. you know people are, people are all about you know the condemned vict- or the uh, condemns rights and shit like that. Has anyone you know ever said no? You're not pulling this shit. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna set a law forth that if you don't 190 days out out of your execution, if you don't file this petition, and uh, 100 and you know 365 days, you don't file this appeal. Has anyone ever thought about setting a fucking timeline? Excuse my language.
1: Well, I think, and and it, if we continue, Judge Axley, who was the trial judge in Allie's case, he tried. He saw this for what it was, and he appointed counsel, and then when counsel requested a stay of execution, he denied it basically by saying that he would take the request under advisement until May 3rd, 1990. Right. And he called them out because he knew exactly what they were doing. But unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know, it's due process. Um, and appellate court... They went to the appellate court and the appellate court stayed the execution on April 26, 1990.
2: But just like you said, is it due process or is it gaming the, the system?
1: Well, it is. It They are gaming the system. I They are gaming the system. But unfortunately, for due process, they get away with it nine times out of ten. The only time I can't I can think of one case in which they didn't get away with gaming the system, and that was a Texas case where attorneys for a guy about to be executed did not file anything until the day of the execution. And then they claimed to have all these problems, and by the time they got the paperwork ready, the uh, courthouse was allegedly closed. Mm-hmm. and they used that to go after Judge Sharon Keller. Mm-hmm. Luckily, they weren't dealing with the general public, and she was found to be not at fault, even though she was also found not to have handled as well as she could have. Um, but basically they found that there was more fault for the attorney's Because there is a procedure for after-hours emergency appeals, and Mm -hmm. these experienced criminal defense attorneys should have been aware of that policy.
2: Right. It just seems like Um, there should be a situation where, yes, you get due process, but you ain't going to freaking play these games.
1: Well, I think that also we saw that in Coleman too,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and where the u s Supreme Court you know basically um because I think that's what happened in Coleman. they filed their notice late, they realized it was late, then they try and get the court or the clerk to change the date on the paperwork so that their appeal would be timely right. But um, like I said, Axley tried. He knew – he saw it for what it was. He was, he was ultimately, though, um, overruled by a, an appellate court or an appellate uh-huh. judge who granted the stay. And then, of course, that bought another year because the hearings in the state post-conviction did not take place until March and April of 1991. And Judge Axley uh, denied relief in findings of fact and conclusions of law that he issued in September of 1991. And then Allie's claims went to the Court of Criminal Appeals, and they were they were raising numerous issues, um, such as ineffective assistance, uh, error in the jury instructions prosecutorial misconduct, unconstitutional death penalty, uh, errors at trial. Um, the judge actually denied the uh, an offer of proof on the deficiency of the medical and psychological evaluations and excluded evidence of the deficiency of medical and psychological evalu- evaluations. Judge Axley was actually correct in that because you're, you don't have an entitlement to effective experts. And so, in um, deficient evaluations, would not be a grounds for um, post conviction relief absent showing that the evaluations were deficient because the attorneys didn't provide. Materials that the attorneys were asked to provide by the experts. Right. And then I mean, they, yeah, they also claimed that Judge Axley was was biased, and they had requested that he recuse, and he refused to recuse. Um, they complained that he denied him a full and fair hearing and denied them funds for additional expert assistance. So basically, they wanted to get get mitigation experts in and present mitigation evidence that wasn't presented to the jury during the penalty phase. Um, The appellate court found no errors per se on the part of Judge Axley. And they didn't review the merits of most of the other claims, but they did remand the case to a different judge, a new judge, to review Allie's claims. Right. And um, so that went back to the state trial court on remand, and there were additional hearings held and additional testimony taken. And ultimately, relief was denied. And then Allie went back to the Court of Criminal Appeals. Um, They complained about judicial bias at trial, basically alleging that um, Jack Collins was seen going through a door with access to either the judges' chambers or the jury – Um, They also complained that Judge Axley's wife sat with the Collinses during trial and that Judge Axley had uh, ex parte communications with two law school students and made statements that evidenced bias against Sedley Alley during his trial. Um, The Court of Criminal Appeals did not find sufficient evidence of bias during the trial most of the comments and uh issues raised by Allie were probably based on events that occurred during the trial or evidence admitted at the trial which makes them not you know not evidence of impartiality imparti- of or uh Bias against Allie per se. Right. I
2: mean, you know, if if
1: at the arraignment he looked Allie in the eye and said, I'm going to see you fry, you son of a bitch, that would be bias. But, you know, being, being, not thinking Allie was a very good person after the penalty phase during a post trial hearing is not. Evidence of bias during the trial,
2: right? No,
1: um, and then they complain about the improper dismissal of a a third juror, in addition to the first two. Uh, and once again, the the appellate court found that that juror also, um, the judge was within his discretion to dismiss her that may have been the one that they wanted to rehabilitate and he wouldn't allow them to.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: then um, ineffective assistance of counsel on trial and on, on direct appeal. However, the trial attorneys testified and the experts testified and the experts actually testified that they had never had attorneys as involved as Allie's attorneys had been in any criminal case. And most of them had been practicing and doing this for ten and twenty years. <clears throat> because these these attorneys actually went to the hospitals to meet with Allie, which they said was actually unusual. And they kept up on the progress and that the attorneys provided them everything that they asked for. Um, there was also an issue of a failure to investigate Allie's birth records. But all of the experts testified that that's usually not something that they use in uh, evaluating competency or multiple personality disorder insanity, um, unless they have evidence or information that leads them to believe that an underlying issue from birth could cause this psychological problem. Um, They also uh, had tested Allie, done a neurological test, and found no signs of any organic brain injury. So some of the things that they complained weren't done had actually been done. They just didn't have the outcome that they wanted, so they pretended that the things didn't happen. Um, And then um, they... Uh, complained about they had apparently requested additional expert services during post conviction, and um, that was not found to not have any merit because you should have your case together. It's about trial. It's not about post conviction. And I think they were complaining about the denial of the expert services during the first round in state court. And. You know, that's not, you're not entitled to that. Um, and again, it may have also been a little bit of claiming they needed experts, and it's like they had seven or eight experts, you know, but they needed one more. And then they complained um, that they were not permitted to. Submit an offer of proof of mitigation evidence, but, again, mitigation evidence should be presented during your penalty phase, not during post-conviction. And the rest of the, the errors uh, during – prosecutor error and trial court error during trial, those issues were found to be meritless along with the guilt and penalty phase jury instructions. Uh, That was meritless. And then the constitutionality of the death penalty in Tennessee was also found to be without merit. And that is the end of the state post-conviction first round. Okay. Um, Next week we'll talk about the federal post-conviction claim. (laughs) And then we'll go into Ali's claims of actual innocence and requests for DNA testing and his execution, which took place on June 28, 2006, and the recent request for post-execution DNA testing. Okay. All right. So that was a lot of material. <laughs>
2: yeah, it was. My brain's kinda of spinning, but at the same time, I mean, it's kinda of funny to me and, how he's gonna be raising innocence claims after he already said, and, Well shit, I'm crazy, that's why I did it.
1: Yeah. And and the a lot of these issues are gonna be rehashed three and four times in the federal habeas corpus. Okay. So all right, so that is another one. Put a bow on her.
2: Put a bow on
1: her. All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook, go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at L N. Join us on Tuesday, July twenty third, 2019, at 8 o'clock p.m. for Episode 21, which will be Part 2 of State of Tennessee versus Sedley Alley. We'll talk about Alley's initial federal post-conviction claims, then move on to the claims of actual innocence raised in 2004 in an attempt to obtain DNA testing. We'll also talk about the multiple requests for DNA testing, all of which were denied, and Alley's execution in June of 2006. Ali's case made headlines in April and May of 2019 when his daughter filed a request for post-execution DNA testing with the Tennessee courts and the governor of Tennessee. We'll update the status of those requests as well. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.